September 9th, 1850. California is admitted as the 31st U.S. state, earning its nickname the Golden State for its residents' love of being peed on. Hello! Welcome to The Revisionists. I'm Brian Flynn. I'm uh, Zach Powers. And mm. I'm, jo- I'm greeting greeting you like you just walked in the room and I'm trying to hit. Um <laughs> Speaking of trying to hit, uh, Jose McCall is back on the show, uh, <laughs> getting a, a, a terrible introduction from me, uh, as is my usual want. Hey, uh, we're back after our uh, summer sabbatical. I hope everyone had fun hitting the beach, surfing mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. Um, Things you do in summer. Yeah. Not having seasonal affective disorder? That's about to end. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it in summer. It's it's a thing. Well, that's just depression then, Brian. Oh, if yeah. It, if it's, uh, you know. <laughs> that's all weather depression, baby. Yeah. Just like so. my tires, my depression, all weather. We, listen, we missed out on a lot of the good joke minds of the summer. The, uh, the Ocean Gate submersible. Mm-hmm. Tra- uh, yeah, our uh, our Barbenheimer tie-in episode that we. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we <laughs> just imagine all the jokes we could have made. There's very few times I'm like, oh, I wish I was going to open mic still. But sometimes I'm like, I want to. I need to hear the takes. I need the to takes. hear what the kids are saying about <laughs> Ocean Gate. Well, the new one coming up is, I think, Swift or Sister, I think I heard. So, uh, Taylor Swift and the Exorcist movie is coming out. So, Oh, what? You okay. Drop on those. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we'll see. We're, I, I feel like we're going to enter a slow season for easy jokes. Um, who yeah, knows? And if the podcast is bad uh, in this iteration... Uh, we're, you know, let's pretend we're part of the writer's guild. So we're not coming up with material. Uh, yeah, we're, we're just, just we're off the chain, like Stephen Colbert trying to kill an hour. Yep. No other podcasts have been affected by the strike. And <laughs> even though we've never had professional writing jobs in the industry, this one is, it's a show That's of right. solidarity. We Absolutely. will also, they're not telling jokes and, and, and. We won't either. Until <laughs> the, the strike is lifted. And you know what? Maybe even a little longer just to show how serious we are. That's right. Because we missed we missed the first part of the strike. So it's kind it's compensating yeah. to put it yeah. at the back end. If you are joining us for the first time, uh, or if you have stuck with us through our sabbatical, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Secondly, we're doing something a little different this episode than we typically do. Uh, we are about to kick off a whole new miniseries, and it's one that I have been wanting to get to for years at this point, um, and probably more than any other. Uh, it's a subject that I am the most interested in. Yeah, um, so this is History's Hottest Feet uh, that's miniseries. Right. <laughs> Brian's been pushing this one for years. Mm-hmm. Let's start at the bottom. Grover Cleveland, uh, bringing in, bringing us in at number two hundred. Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Next up, one ninety nine. Mm, Helen Keller. Um, right. That felt and we do bad. two an episode, so we've got a uh, hundred more episodes, ninety nine more episodes <laughs> after this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hit us on the Patreon. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, we are um, we're going to be kicking off in a couple weeks our miniseries on the Mexican Revolution, um, which is very complicated. It's fucking. There's a lot going on that's super interesting, and there's a lot of background that I think makes it more valuable. Uh, so. What we're doing instead of the normal uh, true history, alternate history, dick, dick, taint uh, sort of 
thing followed by aggressive left-wing politics. Um, what we're doing is I put together basically a um, a primer on all of the history that is leading us up to where our series begins for the background. So it's all true, um, at least to the best of my knowledge from my research. Um, and we're just going to have a good time and except for the parts that are bummers. Um, so with that in mind, before I forget, I will name my sources, um, which are the revolutions podcast, mm, their whole ninth season. Wow. Um, Brian willing to name names. That's right. Um, and of course, Dalton Trumbo and Tralton Dumbo could not Arthur Miller. I was trying to think of someone else who was a famous <laughs> listed. Yeah. yeah. A book, the population history of North America published by the university of Minnesota, which will give you a, a preview of the, probably the biggest bummer of the whole story. Um, and another book called the history of Mexico from pre-conquest to present by Philip Russell. So who has heard of Mexico? <laughs> Let's start there. Cool. Um, allegedly, allegedly um, it is a different country than the United States. Um, mm -hmm. Weird, but true. So basically, Mexico has been populated or the territory we now call Mexico has been populated for about 13,000 years. If you yeah. went to American schools, you probably learned about the Aztec and the Maya. And then maybe if you went to like a school with pretty decent funding, the old man, yeah. uh, if you were old enough to be aware of things in 2012, which there are theoretically now people who weren't uh, the Mayans <laughs> very popular in that particular year yeah. <laughs> because they dared make a calendar that eventually <laughs> stopped extending into the future. <laughs> I feel like if you didn't go to the best school, you're like, how were there people there 5,000 years before the earth was created? <laughs> the Mayans, man. It's also, it's not like I like hit the end of a far side, like page a day calendar and be like, oh, fuck, what's going to, what's Gary Larson predicting for December 31st? <laughs> but of course, that is just a fraction of the cultures that populated Mexico before the arrival of Europeans to even, I feel like a lot of the time, like Aztec and Maya are used like the same way we talk about individual native tribes in the U S where that's not the case. They're sort of like larger umbrella terms for cultures that encompassed a lot of different sort of tribal identities. Um, but basically um, just to give you a sense of the scale um in 2018 the mexican government did a count of existing native languages and there were still 90 distinct active language groups spoken in mexico and so that should give you a sense of like how varied the culture was at this point and that number is uh lower than it would have been at the time when our story begins, uh, because in 1519, uh, the Spanish happened uh, and like they did a lot of other places, they started looking for rocks that were shinier than other rocks and started killing people to access those rocks. Um, man, colonialism is bad people if you haven't gotten that from any of our previous episodes <laughs> it's about to hit home uh th there there's no census counts from this time um Shocking. yeah uh population estimates vary really widely for uh pre-colonial mexico um the most reasonable counts are like probably 15 to 20 million people. Um, wow, yeah. What are the, the most unreasonable counts? 
either three million or wingdings. They're written in wingdings. Yeah, they're written. They're written in wingdings. Uh, and then there's one that says like it's two people, um, Adam and Steve, and what? I, I'm not even gonna. <laughs> they were fucking. Um, anyway, still got it. Um, no one had the census because they paid taxes back in that empire, right? They did. They did have a system of taxation, but like, you know, a lot of that was not actually too dissimilar. One thing that the Spaniards did was like their system of like tribute and labor was basically the same as like the Aztec who were like the dominant empire at the time had in place. So a lot of that tribute just sort of went to enriching the the leader um, and not necessarily like like we would think of taxes for like schools or roads and not necessarily like <laughs> or the military a... and cops which yeah yeah the military and... protect the wealthy yeah it's actually like, that's they're I... so convenient they're already in place <laughs> <laughs> listen i don't know why but the cops say they need tanks so let's just let's just give it to them no let's not do that um that's not the official position of this podcast well, anyway uh, we have no say in that subject whatsoever. Yeah. Given a population estimate of 15 million people, uh, which I said is a fairly reasonable one, um, about 100 years, a little less than 100 years after the arrival of the Spanish, um, the population was estimated at between 1 and 1. 1.5 million uh, indigenous people in Mexico. Uh, or as they were calling it at the time, New Spain. <laughs> so that is uh, 90% of the population. Joke's on them, because today there is no New Spain, but there is a New Mexico. So who had How? <laughs> who had the last left on that one? <laughs> well, well, we'll get to that also, because uh, the, the territory that was New Spain uh, was, yes, what we think of as Mexico, also went stretched down to Costa Rica uh, and then as far north as far north uh, I am not Vince Staples um, as far north as uh, parts of Alaska uh, that was kind of disputed between the Russians and the British and also the Philippines uh, which were kind of an outlier um, and that includes you may have noticed a fucking lot of what is today the United States um, so there is that. There's two structures that the conquistadors set up that are going to be really important going forward. The first one is called the encomienda system, uh, which is basically it's feudalism with like a slightly different. They put more paprika in it in Spain or whatever. There's tapas. They awarded yeah, it's feudalism for the table to share. Right. <laughs> yes. It's finger feud, if you will. <laughs> Man, finger feud is a a kind of dull porn take take off on family feud. But instead of like in the feudal system where you would give someone land as a reward and then the peasants would sort of come with that land, people would have large estates already and the crown or like higher ups on the ladder would give them indigenous people's labor and like their produce also as a gift so they basically became sort of indentured in a way so it, it's it's capitalism? slavery it's capitalism oh. yes um <laughs> where also um one thing we will get to and this sort of bridges the gap to the other structure that is set up is that Compared to the rest of the Americas and a lot of the other places colonized by Spain, especially forced like chattel slavery uh, of like kidnapped African people was not as big in New Spain. This is partly because the Spanish just didn't really have the numbers to like enforce that militarily because the territory was so large. 
You'd be so enslaved right now if I had an army. <laughs> if I had my if I had my guys here, I would just I'd make you mine silver for me. That's that's basically all the European powers. It's just like a bro at a bar, and they're just they do have people to back them up. That's the sad thing. They are extremely well armed. That that's that's Western culture, guys. Um, so if you ever see someone saying. Uh, Western culture invented all this. All Western culture did was like really nail the fucking trebuchet and the musket. The other, the other structure that the conquistadors set up uh, was called the casta system, and this is basically a, a racial hierarchy uh, where it's obviously similar to the one that was set up more informally in British-controlled North America. The whites were on top. Uh, they were called the Peninsulares. Uh, these were people born in Spain, grew up in Spain, who just came to Mexico for like limited periods of time. Uh, below them were the Criollo, which were the um, children of Spanish whites who basically were born and lived in the Western Hemisphere. Um, below them were Mestizo, uh, which are generally like people who are partly Criollo and partly indigenous. Uh, and of course, below them were indigenous, uh, indigenous Americans. Uh, and the about, I wrote it down, 20,000 or so uh, enslaved Africans. So which compared to the millions and millions in North America alone, like that gives you a sense of, how like how small that population was here unlike british north america um there was more intermarriage quote unquote i mean power differentials are weird because when the spanish first landed they brought about 700,000 people with them in the first few years of colonization almost all of them were men and so unlike in North America, where there was generally a, more of a even balance, it seems like a lot of the sources I say do say like marrying and making it seem like a peninsulare or a criollo having a relationship and having children with an indigenous woman. They make it seem consensual. I don't know. And I don't feel like I could speak to that. So you have like this growing mestizo population that is, you know, partly Spanish, partly indigenous, um, in some cases, partly African. If an enslaved African married an indigenous person, uh, their child would have the same level of freedom as the indigenous person. They would not necessarily be subject to slavery, which is also a different, a different thing. Mexico, um, if you picture just like a big slice of pizza that's kind of bent at the bottom. That's not a good way to describe it. <laughs> there's uh, yeah. there's a lot. It's very mountainous on the West Coast and East Coast, especially. And that's where a lot of the agriculture is. And there's a central region going up just north of Mexico City, sort of almost to the border uh, called the Bahia, which is where silver was eventually discovered some of the maybe like one of the largest silver mines in world history was at uh san luis potosi and the problem with the bahia is that the land is shit for farming uh so to get basically indigenous labor to move to the bahia because they couldn't enforce slavery because they didn't have the means they did start offering a system of wage labor um again still kind of a form of slavery um there's that left-wing politics and sort of created this indenture system the the other thing going on the, there are other forces here besides like the local bosses uh, who they owned, they were the ones who owned the haciendas, and so they were called the hacendados. 
there's the the Habsburg monarchy, which ruled in Spain and ostensibly controlled the whole colony. And then there's the Catholic Church. Um, the Habsburgs were really prime uh, prime cousin fuckers, uh, prime just super. They're the people who look at like this, look at like sibling porn and think it makes a good governing strategy, basically. So the Catholic Church also starts moving in, starts doing like their missionary stuff that they do throughout the hemisphere. Um, one thing that, and I don't mean to say this to be like the Catholic Church is actually good, but the church missionaries were working a lot with the indigenous population and they tended to represent them when in like land disputes against the Hacendados. And so a lot of the time when the Habsburgs were ruling on a land dispute, they ended up ruling in favor of indigenous people over the rich landowners because of the Catholic church. One thing that is one of the most fucked up things I think I've read in maybe the years I've been doing research for this podcast um, is that after a while of seeing the Hacendados encroaching on indigenous lands and violating indigenous rights, the church convinced the crown to legally declare all indigenous people in New Spain to be legally minors. So they had the same protection that children had, Uh, which is fucking wild. Uh, Yeah. So is that about increasing their rights or removing rights? Because in some ways it does a little of both. Yeah, yeah, it does both. Like it gives them, it almost like it gives them more legal protection with while removing their legal autonomy, I guess would be the way. Also, there's something there's something in there about the Catholic Church just wanting to create more minors. Um, Fill in your blanks. Um, I don't I don't need to hold your hand for that one. Um, I mean, to be fair, like, this is the best possible way, I guess. If they can just declare somebody who is biologically an adult, a minor, then uh, I guess that's one way to get around the problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck. <laughs> I'd, um, again, not to say the Catholic Church is good. See almost all the rest of its history. The one of the reasons other than like their own dignity and sovereignty that indigenous Mexicans pushed back against uh, the encroachment of the Hacendados was there are two different systems of ownership. Basically, indigenous tribes largely owned their land communally um, and Hacendados introduced when they encroached, they introduced the concept of private ownership, not just of land, but of the resources on it, the water, also the minerals, anything that came from it. At a certain point, there's something called the War of the Spanish Succession over on the over on the continent. And the Habsburgs are replaced by the Bourbons. And the Bourbons, uh, the Habsburgs, I should say, like the Catholics, suck shit. The Bourbons are worse. Um, the Bourbons uh, launched into a period of reform meant at increasing the profitability of their overseas colonies. Um, so where the Habsburgs started were like generally more supportive of indigenous land claims, the Bourbons were not. They almost always sided with the Hacendados. Um, they also passed laws that were meant to expand the productivity of land and more um, just like trying to get more from each individual's labor. And they did promote free trade, but only within the Spanish empire. So before um, Mexicans could only trade within new Spain. Um, Now they could send things to other Spanish colonies in like Spanish South America things like that mm-hmm. um and they the bourbons generally pre- 
uh, promoted central power over the power of local elites. Um, of course, any government position, uh, you could only get that if you were peninsulare. There's also the, you're seeing the basis at this time of these little departments, uh, intendancies, that's what they're called, that are basically the basis for the current states of Mexico today. Um, and you see in these intendancies sort of resentment growing among like the elite criollo because they are generally well-educated, uh, they're rich, and they can't access power. Um, and let alone the the resentment that is in the mestizo and indigenous communities. So there are a bunch of forces sort of happening and fomenting right now. One is the sense of creating sort of an indigenous nation or, you know, some of the Criollo and Mestizo populations refer to it as an Indian nation because they saw themselves as part of it. Um, there's revolutionary Catholicism, uh, which if you're reading the Bible right, is just Catholicism because <laughs> they're basically mm -hmm. like, hey, private property is a sin. And then there's the idea of just like economic independence, which was the same thing you see with like the American Revolution. This is happening at the same time as Spain is sort of declining as an empire. They control Florida and a bunch of the West Coast. But around this time, you see uh, the Napoleonic Wars starting to are the French Revolutionary Wars and then the Napoleonic Wars coming into play. And that's going to change things a lot in Spain. Is Spain responsible for Florida man then? Like, was that an invention of theirs during that? I mean, I Florida is such a unique combination of like colonial Spain and like the United States mm. at a very at some very specific times. And also bath salts that like, yeah, I, I would say they're partly responsible. All right. <laughs> the blame for something else. <laughs> <laughs> so on September 15th, the silver rich Bajio, again, it had seen this influx of migrants made to work the silver mines on land that couldn't support them. Like it couldn't feed them enough the silver market starts to really hit a slump uh, and combined with the Napoleonic Wars um, and this thing that the Bourbons tried to push through called the Act of Consolidation, which is kind of complicated. Um, basically, the, it forced the church in New Spain to deposit all of its funds with the Bourbon crown. And then the Bourbon crown would like pay the church a dividend every year. Um, but the church held a, a lot, a lot of the mortgages to like medium and large properties. And so they had to call in all these loans, some of them like, you know, on decades long terms. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like the economy like goes into a tailspin. Plus cash for gold, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's right. Now we have to go to our sponsor. Uh, hey, invest in gold because Glenn Beck says to. That can't be right. <laughs> that, I can't believe that guy doesn't have syphilis. Um, so in in the city of Cuarataro, uh, sort of a little like northwest of Mexico City, the mayor Miguel Dominguez and his wife Josefa are sort of forming a like a revolutionary salon almost like like you talk about you hear about like the the coffee houses in Boston and things like that or like the salons of the French Revolution is very much like that um, with other people Ignacio Allende uh, Juan Aldama uh, who were both like Criollo who favored like an American style revolution and another man uh, who was inspired more by the French Revolution and the ideas of more social revolution, justice for the poor, no caste system, um, break up states, and abolish slavery, forced labor, and tribute. Uh, that man is Miguel Hidalgo. 
um, who I want to pause on briefly. Um, he was a Criollo, but he was not one of the like upper class Criollo. So he interacted a lot with indigenous people and mestizos. Um, he, he sort of had like the advantages of interacting with these groups, but his family also had enough money that he got a good education in Spain. Um, and he became a priest. He went to seminary, but not like a church priest, like one of the science priests, like a professor of philosophy. What one of the sources I read, I forget which one, uh, said that he was intelligent enough that the church was very concerned about him, which I think is <laughs> telling. But um, because and God eat a burrito. yeah you know when you hear thunder that's god burning the roof of his mouth on a burrito (laughs) hmm, okay i mean is that what burning your mouth on the roof of a burrito sounds like i mean i i zach maybe you need to burn your mouth more possibly Um, i yeah um, i thought you were gonna say you know live a little god clapping Clapping those cheeks. <laughs> oh, man. I wish I had because that honestly, if I had heard that growing up, I may have stayed Catholic. Who knows? Uh, probably not because of all the other things. Um, because he was like a professor of philosophy, Hidalgo was legally allowed to read heretical and like enlightenment texts that were outlawed for basically everyone else which is cool that the church can do that and so in 1792 he's fired from his teaching position but in grand catholic church position he shuffled around to a different parish and he became the priest of a parish in a city called dolores and he was technically a Hacendado. Um, and he, despite being a priest, loved to fuck. Uh, he had at least seven kids with different people. And he generally opposed monarchy and superstition. Uh, he favored social equality. Uh, he tried to just like increase or increase the the lot of the indigenous and mestizo villagers he was around. Uh, Spain got especially mad at him when he tried to teach uh, the villagers how to grow grapes and grapes shittier cousin, the olive because Spanish law was that those can only be grown in Spain and Mexico had to buy them. Like they had Mm -hmm. to import them. I'd just be like, well, I just found these. Whoops, I didn't know I was eating the seeds. They fell yeah. on the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Think that's how things grow all the fucking yeah. time. It's also just weird to be like, no, we have grapes. That's ours. But colonialism is weird, I guess. So there's this revolutionary plot growing up between Carataro and Dolores. Um, and at a certain point uh, in the fall of 1810, Government agents warn Josefa, the mayor's wife, um, that they've uncovered details of a plot, not knowing she was in on it. And so she sends word up to Dolores, uh, to Hidalgo, to tell him to, like, All right, let, let's let's tamp it down for a little bit and not be ar- arrested and killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hidalgo decides not to do that. <laughs> Instead, uh, at about midnight uh, on September 16th, 1810, um, Hidalgo rings the church bells at his church in Dolores, uh, gathering all the villagers who would come. And he gives a speech that is known today as the Grito de Dolores or the Cry of Dolores. Um, And because it was midnight because it was kind of impromptu uh, and because it was just off the cuff. uh, Mm -hmm. There's no recorded definitive version of the speech. Um, The gist is basically fuck this. Let's rise up and 
the one line that seems pretty consistent through a lot of the different versions is uh, death to the gachopines and death to bad government. Uh, gachopines being like slang term for peninsulares. Mm-hmm. Um, Can't and- take my grapes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had like one of the flags that says come and take it, but with a bunch of grapes. Yeah. Uh, don't tread on grapes unless you're <laughs> making wine. <laughs> So this speech was, I mean, it was like, it was a match to gunpowder sort of moment. It was like the, I feel like the equivalent of the American revolution is like maybe the Boston massacre or maybe even like Lexington and Concord, like something like that. Like, damn, even the preacher is swearing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, the teacher said, fuck like that, like that sort of moment. That day, Hidalgo gets about 5,000 volunteers uh, for his army. He has no military experience, but he ends up leading an army. They're not well armed. They have At best, they have like some old muskets and like machetes, but some of them just have fucking rocks. And so they start marching to um, the capital of Guanajuato um, and start like along the way attacking Peninsulares and capturing their land and redistributing it uh in about a week he goes from five thousand to thirty thousand uh troops following him um and they reach guanajuato um and the peninsulare officials they sort of barricade themselves in like i can't it's like a granary something like that and uh they're all massacred um like men, women, children. Um, it it's it's grim. It's also one of the sort of grim things that I'm like, yeah. I mean, this is bad, but also I'm not the most mad at it. Hmm. Um, it's complicated. Hidalgo being part of sort of this broader coalition, this turns off some of his more conservative allies who are more committed to the social hierarchy. Uh, because they're like, oh, these peasants are massacring their betters. And so a lot of the Criollo who were with Hidalgo switch sides to the Peninsulares, um, especially after Hidalgo starts going around like emancip- ish- saying slavery is outlawed in the territory they're conquering. Uh, because a lot of the people who were enslaved were basically enslaved as like status symbols, like a lot of them were doing like they were doing work in houses they were there basically so people when they're having fancy parties can be like look i own a person and that makes me cool like wrapping wrapping your head around it is fucking wild the viceroy of new spain so you get to kill your boss that's the fun yeah part yeah it. yeah it's the american dream i hope no one at work listens to this Uh, um the viceroy of new spain who is like basically the governor of the whole colony um i should have mentioned this earlier his this is his first day on the job uh literally he arrived the night before (laughs) um his name's like javier vargas he's not that important um but they're sort of like they're on the back foot they're scrambling to defend mexico city and like hidalgo has an open road from guanajuato to mexico city for some reason that no one really knows there's a lot of differing opinions on this um with mexico city basically in his sights hidalgo orders his entire army to break off the march and they head west This basically gives Vargas and the Spanish forces time to regroup. It's a huge miscalculation. No one really knows why. One of the best arguments is that, like, he thought that if they entered Mexico City, it would lead to a bloodbath, which is probably not wrong. The the other thing that makes that complicated is if he had done that, the War of Mexican Independence could have ended right there. Instead, it would go on for more than a decade after that. It's one of the things that makes war fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Hidalgo basically killed his own momentum. Uh, his army splits up. He tries to set up like an authoritarian, like autocratic government in uh, Guadalajara. But he's he's stripped of his military command by the other revolutionaries who have been like, you fucked up. And he tries to flee to the U.S. with the other revolutionaries just to escape. Uh, but a disgruntled rebel turns them in. And Hidalgo, Allende, Aldama, they're all executed. Their heads are cut off. They're displayed on the walls of Guanajuato. But don't go west. That's the yeah. <laughs> Do not go west, uh, young man or old man. He was kind of old at that point, I guess. But he had like someone who was essentially like his foreign secretary, uh, Ignacio Rayon, who took over command and where Hidalgo was really f- working with rebels in the Bajio up north um rayon starts working down south specifically um in like oaxaca and um morelos uh in fact he meets a man uh, who would serve as a general named general morelos uh he was a mestizo uh believed in republican government uh republican small r not <laughs> republican in the Pizzagate sense, <laughs> believed in the social revolution, was an abolitionist, and another uh, general named. He's Mexican. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, there's going to be when the U.S. becomes a bigger player in this story. There's going to be a lot of that sort of thing going around. <laughs> this is also like also coming after the Haitian Revolution. And he, the other important general he meets up with is a man named Vicente Guerrero, who was uh, mestizo. He was actually Afro-Indigenous, uh, dark-skinned. He was like a mule driver uh, growing up, but became a super capable officer. And so Morelos, General Morelos leads a successful campaign in Oaxaca and Acapulco. And they established basically a Congress to figure out like a declaration of independence and a constitution for what an independent Mexico would look like. And that's when the uh, Spanish appoint a new general, Agustin de Iturbide, um, who his nickname was the Iron Dragon. Um, and he takes over command of the army in the south. Um, How did a nickname like that? that yeah, nothing good. I don't think I don't think there's a way you can get a nickname like the Iron Dragon and be like a totally chill person. <laughs> this guy can fly and breathe fire. <laughs> <laughs> also, yeah, also he looks great on, on like a Spencer's gifts display. <laughs> so Ichibide, uh captures uh, General Morelos. Morelos is executed. Guerrero oh. takes over very dwindling forces uh the congress disbands and then fucking europe happens again uh and napoleon is finally defeated at waterloo napoleon had taken over spain at this point um and this means that the bourbons return and a new viceroy comes in and offers amnesty to the rebels guerrero and his small forces are the only ones who refuse. They have a small band in the mountains of the name of this Mexican state is a spoiler, but in the mountains of Guerrero. Mm-hmm. Um, and for like a few years, they're fighting like a guerrilla campaign. And then Europe happens again. In 1820, there's uh, the a mutiny in Cadiz, basically that forces the Bourbon monarch to adopt liberal reforms. And this also means part of the thing that the mutineers force on the king is that he would not send any more reinforcements to the Americas. Uh, Like they basically, the liberals in Spain support a lot of like the liberal goals of the Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of the, Peninsulares in Mexico 
and the more conservative Criollo, they change sides. They're like, we want to be with the rebels now because we want to be independent from this liberal monarchy in Spain. Um, that was like challenging the church and challenging like established power and wealth. Um, so overnight, Interbide becomes the general of a rebel side. Uh, he's super conservative. He loves the hierarchy. He loves the caste system. Um, he wants to maintain order, basically, but he needs support from Guerrero. So they form like sort of a secret alliance and develop uh, what is called the Plan of Iguala. And as we go through the series, there's going to be a lot of plan of insert location here because every sort of like rebel interest and inclination develops a plan. Be like, this is how we think the government should be. So this is the Plan of Iguala. Um, which is basically broad social equality, um, but the power of the church and the power of landowners is preserved. And also, like, they'd be an independent state. Um, the A new liberal viceroy from the liberal... They're not called viceroys anymore. They're called cafe uh, politicos. Um, arrives, tries to open negotiations. Um and eventually they settle on uh, the Treaty of Cordoba, uh, which basically leads to the Mexican Declaration of Independence and the creation of the first Mexican empire. Um, because Iturbide declares himself the first Mexican emperor. <laughs> um, he, he only is in office for about 18 months, so... <laughs> he, he doesn't do great <laughs> um, there's a string of revolts and counter revolts against him there's disagreements about the goals of the revolution S some of the um, conservatives who weren't like hey let's have an empire they wanted like a constitutional monarchy at first they went and offered the throne of Mexico to um, King Ferdinand of Spain who they had just technically deposed. And they were like, hey, you can be our king again uh, and not deal with all these Spanish liberals um, if you just like come over and you're abide by our constitution. And Ferdinand, being a bourbon king, did not recognize Mexican independence and was super stubborn about it. So he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's really how Iturbide becomes emperor. Uh, he dissolves Congress. Uh, there's more rebellions. Uh, and this is when a rebel general by the name of Santa Ana emerges. Uh, he's going to be super important. Uh, who, along with Guerrero, um, forces Interbide to abdicate. Uh, he flees, Interbide flees to Europe, ending the first Mexican empire. He's going to come back, uh, but he's going to be executed pretty quickly, which is fine with me. So there's the conflicts between the peasants versus the elite and the Criollo, but there is now an independent Mexico and it's very federalist. Like the States, the individual States have a lot of power compared to the central government. Everyone there's equal citizenship for everyone, except for the church and the military. They have like extra privileges. Um, but the constitution also stripped indigenous groups of their protections and whatever rights they had. Um, so a lot of indigenous groups who weren't liking how they were treated under Spanish rule sort of also did not like the new independent Mexican government. <laughs> when have we seen that happen before? Like I said, New Spain stretched down to Costa Rica and up to Alaska, the Philippines. Um, after Mexico declares independence, basically all the Central American states break off and form their own. Briefly, they're united. They're like the Republic of Central America or something like that, all except Chiapas, which stays part of Mexico. Everything else sort of becomes its own thing. Um, but Mexico still extends up through you know, California, the Pacific Northwest, Wyoming, Colorado, all that. 
at the same time, the new Mexican government is getting a lot of pressure from other colonial forces, the British, the French, and the Americans. The Americans had pressured the Spanish to give them Florida fairly recently, and the U.S. was eyeing Western expansion. This is like the very beginning of the Manifest Destiny era. Um, Let's give Florida back. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, I'll... I would say we can keep Miami. That's probably it. And the U.S. did not support Mexican independence because they had these ongoing negotiations with Spain because we were super horny to get Florida for some reason. We need, um, <laughs> we need more parking lots. Give us, give us Orlando. <laughs> but yeah, Mexican's northernmost border sort of set at the current border between California and Oregon. Mexico does attract a lot of European investment at this point because whites love silver, but silver processing requires mercury at this time. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe just to do shooters. And Spain had like mercury mines and they stopped shipping to Mexico. So the market collapses. Mexico defaults on a bunch of its debt, uh, basically because Spain screws them over. Um. There's a disputed election in 1828 and the presidency of Mexico between 1829 and 1855 changes 48 times. That's an average of like once every six months. There is someone else who basically has power over the state. There's probably going to be a lot of moments when people who have American biases in this series are going to think, oh, wow, Mexico is really unstable. And it is, but it's unstable because it, for a lot of reasons, mainly because it's being constantly fucked over. Um, Same thing with Haiti. Um, But there are large, a lot of the power in Mexico at this time is invested in what are basically warlords um, who, they're called caudillos. Um, They're sort of like a patron-client network They're more loyal to them than the state. And so they're all constantly fighting for power. Um, Vicente Guerrero, um, he does become president in 1829, but because he was Afro-Indigenous and dark-skinned, the conservative Criollo and Peninsulares who remain in Mexico uh, raise concerns that he's going to do another Haitian revolution in Mexico. Uh, And so he is ousted from power and executed in 1831. Uh, The Spanish do try to reinvade also in 1829. Their heart's not in it, really. Santa Ana becomes president um, after driving off the Spaniards. Uh, This is the first of 11 different elections he wins. And then around this time, Mexico invites a bunch of Anglos into the territory of uh, what is today Texas. Uh, to try to control the native population there because it's a big territory. There's not a lot of people. Um, but the the whites they invited in aren't super interested in that. Instead, they settle in the rich farmland to the east uh, and declare their independence. Uh, they also are, the whites are super mad that slavery is illegal in Mexico. And so they declare their independence. Uh, there's a stupid thing at the Alamo. Um, but Santa Ana spreads his forces thin and uh, he's captured and forced at gunpoint to sign a treaty recognizing Texas independence. He's returned in disgrace and retires. Um, Texas, the Republic of Texas, re-legalizes slavery. Um, the French king at the same time decides that Mexico owes France 600,000 pesos uh, for the property owned by French nationals that had been destroyed in like rioting and like the constant fighting, including like a specific pastry shop in Mexico City. Mexico, of course, refuses to pay this because it's bug fuck. Uh, <laughs> and so France invades, and this is called the Pastry War. Yeah, uh, there's an aggressive northern invasion in the 1840s. Guess what? Um, because the U.S. annexes Texas, which Mexico did not recognize as an independent state. And so there's a border dispute between the U.S. and Mexico. 
and the U.S. tries to provoke a war by sending troops down to the disputed region and basically waits for the Mexican army to shoot at them. And that's how the Mexican-American War happens, uh, because James K. Polk is a fucking asshole. There's eventually the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends up forcing Mexico to cede New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, all of California and parts of Colorado and Wyoming, setting up basically what are the current borders of Mexico. Santa Ana leads an authoritarian coup. It's unpopular. And Benito Juarez uh, starts leading a uh, one of the rebellions. Benito Juarez, going to take a minute because uh, he's also very important going forward. He is fully indigenous. He's Zapotec from Oaxaca. He learned Spanish working as a household servant when he was like 12. Uh, Oaxaca is like a liberal stronghold at this time. He entered in one of the rare marriages that is an indigenous man and a white woman. Um, and they are like super liberal. Um, he's exiled to New Orleans with a gang of other liberals. Um, and they put together the plan of Iotla. Um, Santa Ana doesn't have a lot of support. He's forced to abdicate and he goes back into exile and Juarez becomes president. Um, and he enacts La Reforma, uh, a bunch of liberal reforms, which is breaking up unused church property um, and banned corporate ownership of land, which sounds good, except it, again, forced indigenous groups to divide communal land into individual plots would make them very easy for large, rich people to pick off. So there is the Reform War, Juarez, he decides Mexico owes a lot of debt. A lot of this debt was incurred by Santa Ana trying to fight our rebellion. So I'm not going to pay this debt right now. That gives Napoleon III the idea to invade. And he sets up, actually, former episode topic, Maximilian I as the new emperor of Mexico. And this is, of course, where you get the the famous Battle battle of Puebla uh, on May the 5th. That's why you have Cinco de Mayo. That's why many of your friends probably got alcohol poisoning at some point. <laughs> the, the Battle of Puebla is a, a victory, but the war is doesn't go well for mexico um and they're ended up to sign a treaty where they they're forced to pay these debts back to france um and a lot but a lot of the factionalism basically boils down and this is where we'll wrap up because we're about to get to where our series is going to start to not liberal and conservative but liberal on liberal the conservatives are no longer really a political force in mexico uh juarez is super popular still despite the war he runs for president again and is re-elected um and there's rumors about him running a third time but the liberals one of their big positions starts to be we don't want re-election to be legal like their their whole cry is no re-election and so the liberal versus liberal conflict is sort of the juarez party uh, which is fine with him continuing to hold power. And the other liberal party, which is against someone holding power for a very long time. Uh, and one of the leaders of that party is the subject of our first episode. And it's very funny that that is his position uh, because he is Porfirio Diaz. And the next like 40 fucking years of Mexican history are called the Porfiriato. Hmm. <laughs> And so that takes us to where our series is going to start in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I, I wasn't sure how long that would go. But um, like I said, this is a, a phase of history I'm super into um, because of Pancho Villa and Zapata and all of that that we're going to get to. So I maybe threw myself into it too much. Jose, uh, do you have any uh, do you have anything you want to plug before we go? Um, High Plains Complaint Department, the week after High Plains. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Uh, (laughs) absolutely unhinged show. Love it. (laughs) Um, Zach, you co-host the movie trap. 
Yeah, we're also in a period of semi-hiatus because one of my co-hosts is having a weird movement situation at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, He works for The Game Grumps as their editor, and it's weird. Um, But uh, yeah, so we're sort of uh, on a periodical release schedule, like when we can get around to it uh, right now on that one as well. But, uh, you know, if you have a, a subscription, you'll find an episode every once in a while. Our next one is going to be about the Bruce Willis film Hudson Hawk. So, <laughs> okay, look forward to that. <laughs> oh, Godspeed. <laughs> um, as for me, listeners, I uh, I made a tabletop game. It's called Heartwood. Uh, you play as trees, uh, reforesting the post-human landscape. Um, it's fun. It's kind of relaxing. Um, you can download it for free name your own price um if you go to itch.io and search for heartwood um or just lamplighter games um yeah play it have fun uh but yeah jose thank you so much for joining us hell yeah thanks for having me man uh zach thank you again as always yep uh, of course All right. For everyone here at The Revisionists, uh, I'm Brian Flynn. Uh, I'm Zach Powers. And have a good time. Good time.